0: Hi, this is Nancy Yerrell, and welcome to High Road to Humanity. And today we have a wonderful guest, just like we always do. Today we've got Dr. Jeffrey Martin, and if you're watching me on YouTube, I'm holding up his book. It's called The Finders, and this is going to be a very interesting show, you guys. We're going to talk about consciousness. We're going to talk about peace. We're going to talk about how you find peace within yourself, I think, more than anything. This is really going to be a good one. So share this with your friends. But before I bring um, Jeffrey on, I want to talk about the state of humanity for a few minutes here. I pulled a few things that um, I thought were interesting, and I just want to share them with you. There are more people killed in Kentucky, city of Louisville, this year than ever before. I found this really quite interesting. Uh, Within With nearly three months left before the end of 2020, the city of Louisville has recorded more homicides this year than ever before. Really crazy stuff. I've been to Louisville. I've been to Louisville Downs, and this is just so surprising to me. It says a violent weekend, which left four people dead, pushed the total number of murders (laughs) in Kentucky Um, to 121, more than half of which remained unsolved as of Tuesday morning. It marks the biggest victim count in Louisville since 2016 when authorities recorded 117 homicides, according to WDRB. So there's also been, they say, 426 non-fatal shooting Louis- shootings in Louisville this year, which is more than doubled than around the same time in 2019. So um, things are just not looking really good, the state of humanity there. And I just thought that was kind of shocking um, for a small town like that to have something like that. Um, occur. So that was kind of crazy. I also pulled up some, uh, some other things. One thing I thought that was really interesting. It says the NFL hits three coaches and teams with large fines for not wearing face masks. This is interesting. The NFL has fined San Francisco 49ers head coach Kyle Shanahan and two other coaches for not following rules. About uh, keeping their faces covered, so they're it's affecting all of us. The COVID nineteen is just affecting everybody, which is really kind of crazy out there. You know, I always like to pull up some good news because there's always there's always room for good news. And um, I pulled a couple things up I wanted to share with you. Farmers plant over two million sunflowers, and they invite visitors to take a dozen home. I thought that was really cool. Uh, It says that a family in Wisconsin has planted more than twenty acres of sunflowers to bring a little light to these dark times. Well, that's pretty cool, you guys. And, um, Another thing I saw here was Kroger manager hires homeless woman who was sleeping in the store parking lot. I thought that was interesting. A manager at Kroger store in Nashville hired a woman who had been sleeping in the parking lot for more than a year. Wow, what a wonderful act of kindness. So there is some good things going on today uh, in humanity, even though um, we've got a lot of craziness going on with the COVID and, and uh, the election and all of that. We still have some positive. Now, let me give you a little bit of information about Mr. Dr. Jeffrey Martin before we bring him on. He's a really interesting guy. He is the founder of the transformative technology space, a serial Entrepreneur and a social scientist who researches personal transformation and the highest forms of human well being. This is really cool, you guys. Over the last 15 years, Jeffrey has conducted the largest international scientific study of fundamental well being, which includes the types of consciousness commonly known as enlightenment, non duality, the peace that passes understanding, uh, unitive experience, and hundreds of other terms. Now, this resulted in the first reliable cross-culture and pan-tradition classification system for these types of experiences. So let me give you a little more information. Jeffrey is a best-selling author. He's an award-winning educator. He's authored and co-authored um, over 20 books. He has numerous other publications. His work has regularly been uh, featured as leading academic conferences worldwide, as well as major public forums. Um, so he's just done all kinds of stuff. He's done TED Talks. I traveled all over the place. He's he's talked at Harvard, Yale, University of London. Hey, Jeffrey, welcome to High Road to Humanity.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: It's really nice to have you. I guess my first question is, you know, tell us your story. What prompted you to study the happiness of people? Because that's what this is, right?
1: Yeah, it was totally selfish. You know, I was just looking to get happier myself, basically. So, you know, okay. I can't claim that there was some greater thing for humanity behind my impetus. I was your classic type A overachiever, right? basically. And I right. had, uh, you know, I, I just had sort of done everything that I thought people had ever told me that should make me one of the happiest people out there. And I wasn't unhappy. I wasn't miserable. Okay. Um, but, you know, and I more or less had everything, um, but like there's still too many people that were happier than me.
0: Well, so you know, when, when you say, when you say you had everything, you had the material stuff, the house and the car yeah. and the job and all that kind of stuff is what you Yeah, saying.
1: absolutely. Companies, not jobs. And, you know, people worked for me. I didn't work for them Okay. Uh, and all of that. Right. And so okay. um, it was, you know, I mean, I had a a great lifestyle Okay. to be sure. Um, But I couldn't help but notice that there seemed to be people out there that, despite all of that, were happier than I was. (laughs) And so I thought, you know, I'm going to try to figure this out. And I, you know, did what you would normally do as an overachiever, right? Bought every course, tried everything out. Nothing seemed to really make that much of a dent. And so I thought, you know, it's clearly possible. I guess I'm going to have to figure this out myself. And so Mm -hmm. I just changed my life to, I thought it would take maybe, you know, a couple of years or something. Here we are 15 years later. Okay. You know, still talking okay. about this, but
0: Right, right. Well, so yeah, that's the story. That's the story. So, did you so you bought a bunch of things. Now, I I need to rewind a little bit. Did you grow up uh, going to church? Did you believe I did. God? Yeah, did. my mom
1: was uh, actually a uh, she had a Christian TV missionary show. Whoa. Um, and, you know, my, one of my uncles, I have, she had uh, six siblings. One of my uncles, they were all basically preachers or professors in Bible colleges or okay. they taught at other Christian schools or, okay. you know, and that you type never- of thing. So on her side, it was very religious. On my dad's side, um, he was more or less an only child. So that was the only family that I was really in touch with was on her side.
0: Okay. But when you, when you grew up, I mean, did you, like, were you in touch with God or a higher power or anything like that? Did you ever connect in that way?
1: No, you know, I basically felt rejected by God. You know, I, oh. it was this constant drumbeat of, you know, just ask Jesus to come into your heart and you'll have this whole transformation. And, you know, nothing ever seemed to happen to me when I did that. Okay, And so, um, so I think I more or less grew up feeling like, you know, Jesus didn't want me. Um, Or that maybe Jesus wasn't real, you know, is sort of, you know, the other side of that. I mean, I'm not sure if it was uh, doesn't want me or just, well, this, whatever this thing is that my parents seem to believe in and all of my aunts and uncles and stuff. And, you know, I don't know that this is credible.
0: Wow. So when you, when you started to do this research, you, you call your book, the finders. I I think this is really interesting. So who are the finders? I mean, you did this research. Who are these people?
1: Yeah. So what I started doing was just looking for the happiest people out there, and you know, worldwide, out sort of one population. Pardon? Worldwide, worldwide. Yeah. Worldwide.
0: Okay. Okay. All right.
1: We had a, that's one thing that distinguished this research was that it was the first thing that the first research like it that had you know a large amount of resources behind it. Because of what I'd done in my life up to that point. Ordinarily, you're like, you know, a professor somewhere and you're scratching together a couple of nickels to try to do your research with. And basically, if it's not psychopathology, there's no money for it. Um, Because, you know, the National Institute of Health and all these people, they fund things that, that make six people better. Um, and so, you know, if you're trying to research positive stuff like this, there's very little resources that are available to the average academic, but I was able to bypass that because I could just write checks all day long Okay. Uh, to research, right? And so it was a, it was, it was one of the differentiating factors, right, really, right. In our work. that and the communication networks that were available. I think we also came along at a time when it was easier to communicate with people anywhere in the world. There you go. You know, the internet was well-established. Email mm-hmm. was well-established. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that. And so those well, two things were really what made this project possible.
0: Okay. Now, how many people globally did you, you know, talk to?
1: In the initial sample, we did 1,200 people. Okay. Um, I mean, plus or, you know, plus a little, right? Okay. Um, I mean, just a little more than that, but just rounding, rounding down. Okay. Uh, we did about 1,200 people. Okay.
2: And
0: so these are people who, some were religious, some were atheist. They're from, some were wealthy. Yeah. Some were not. So, what were the yep. findings from all these people?
1: Well, they all they all really had what you would think of as um, a religious or spiritual type of mm-hmm. experience, as it was defined at the time. Now, we've since redefined it as just a psychological, you know, sort of neuroscience-based experience. Wait, wait,
0: wait! But- Why did you redefine it?
1: <laughs> I'm going to stop because you because it that- is. Oh. You know frankly, because it is i mean oh. if you 're if it 's a thousand years ago and uh-huh. you don 't have a frame of reference for what the brain is okay. uh, and what the brain 's networks are right you 're going to call something one thing um, and you know sort of misjudge it in a way, in the same way that science has progressed in every other area, right? I mean, oh, you know, what people thought about the weather a thousand years ago, or what people thought about, you know, yeah, medicine a yeah. thousand years ago, or whatever else, we've basically updated all of it. This is one area that just kind of nobody got around to updating, except, okay. so we were the first ones to sort of do it.
0: Well, this is really interesting um, because I have my take on it too. So, so when we come back, we're going to go to commercial break here, you guys. When we come back, we'll, we'll talk to Jeffrey some more about this and find out who the finders are. If you're watching me on YouTube today, I'm holding his book up. Um, I picked this up on Amazon. And it, do you have a website that we can find you at, Jeffrey? What's your website?
1: Sure. Uh, the research can be found at nonsymbolic.org. I can be found at uh, drjeffreymartin.com.
0: Perfect. Hey, you guys, this is Nancy Uralt. This is High Road to Humanity, and we will be right back.
3: Hang on. We have more stories to tell on High Road to Humanity. Check out Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to book a session with Nancy to learn how to tap into your own abilities.
0: Hold your hand, The world is coming. watch the colors, lift your soul. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed a miracle? I think most of us probably have. Whether it's a financial emergency, health crisis, or some other serious situation, most of us know the feeling of helplessness and even hopelessness. Now imagine having to wait for a miracle for six months, even a year or more. That's a situation for thousands of children all around the world who are waiting for a sponsor. Their only hope of escaping the poverty around them is someone like you choosing them. This is Nancy Yarrow, and I'm joining with compassion to give you the chance to be the miracle in a child's life. For a little more than a dollar a day, you'll provide the physical, emotional, and spiritual support a child needs. Not just to survive poverty, but to be released from poverty in Jesus' name. Don't make a child wait one day longer for their miracle. You can find out more or sponsor a child right now. Just go to my website, nancyyourout.com. That's www.nancyyourout.com. Hi, this is Nancy Uralt. This is High Road to Humanity. I'm here today with Jeffrey Martin, Dr. Jeffrey Martin. We're talking about a wonderful study that he did um, to find out the happiest people or to find the happiest people on earth. And, you know, so you say they were all spiritual or you thought in the beginning they were spiritual. Can you clarify that? Because I'm a little confused on that one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They were people who basically represented experiencing things like enlightenment, persistent mystical experience, non-duality, God consciousness, unity consciousness, things like that. They just wound up being, you know, they represented themselves as being so much more extraordinarily happy than everybody else Yes, that it seemed to make sense to at least look in their direction. I thought, you know, what we would find is that this would be psychopathological, that these people would be delusional in some way or uh, whatever else, because their claims just seemed a little too fantastic. And in fact, Mm -hmm. my peers in the academic world um, were all like, you know, be super careful going in that direction, because that's probably just a bunch of crazy people,
0: you know. But they're not crazy people. (laughs) Pardon? They're not crazy people. They're happy people. You know what I have They turned
1: out to not be crazy people. Right. Oh, I
0: know. True. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I'm like you. I'm my <laughs> personality. And so um, I'm going to throw my two cents in here because it, it's, uh, it's, this is what I do. I talk about spirituality and I talk about enlightenment and I talk about a higher um, a sense of consciousness. And you know, you're exactly right. Once you start to believe in a higher power and you can say God, you can say the divine, you can say Buddha, you can say whatever you want. But once you start to believe and realize that this isn't it and that we are souls and that we don't die and that we go on, you're not afraid to die anymore. You're not afraid of death. And you change your perspective because all those things that are outside of you don't really matter because the power and the peace come from within. So that is what happens when you become spiritual. And over time, that's what happened to me. And that's why I do this show, because I learned that when you go within and you have faith in something bigger than yourself, then peace comes. What do you think? Have you found that as well?
1: I think that's a very common report. And if there's one thing that delineates these people, regardless of the category of experience that they're having, Mm -hmm. it's a shift away from what nature gives us, which has a fundamental sense of discontentment, you know, that's, that's right. very important to our survival instincts for, you know, most animal species. We're in the Western world, we're very safe. We live very, very safe lives, right? And so that's less important us. We don't have to be like the bird that when it takes a peck of a crumb has to immediately start looking around for what's going to kill it until it's guaranteed to be safe, until it can take another peck, right? But that's what we're wired for as just as normal animals, right? People don't like to think of ourselves as animals, but we've got that same wiring that all other animals do. And so that in a modern context, in a modern sort of developed. You know, world context gives us a sense of discontentment in every moment. And the main thing that these folks experience, Mm -hmm. a finder experiences, is a shift from a fundamental sense that something's not quite right in this moment and I better be on guard uh, to a sense that everything is okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, somehow, which is often paradoxical to them because, you know, they could be getting divorced or they could be in the throes of having their career get crushed or, or something like that. And yet, even in the middle of all of that, if they look down deep to sort of the baseline of their experience, it still somehow seems improbably like everything is okay, even though logically that doesn't really make any sense. Um, And so, yeah, that's a good, that's a good description. No fear of death, fear of death often leaves any existential doubts or thoughts or, you know, people that were tortured by what is the meaning of life or whatever that all disappears. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's a tremendous
0: way of experiencing the world. Right. So you started to learn that and you started to realize that these people experience life differently. Now you talk in the book about the voice um, within our heads that tell us all these different things. And you talk about the narrative self. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because everybody's right. got that voice in their mind. And, and you say once we can get that voice to kind of quiet down, um, which is true, you know, and go within, then things change. Address that if you would.
1: Yeah, that's just a piece of our mental architecture starts when um, sort of historical narrative life memory comes in around age three, roughly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, plus or minus for some people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it basically is a key part of our survival mechanism through all of our growing up. Um, and so it becomes what we identify with because it comes in with memory. It becomes what we think of as ourselves people think of themselves as that voice in their head that has emotions uh, often associated with it and, you know, everything else. But in reality, um, you know, that wasn't there before age two and a half or three or three and a half or whenever it comes in for somebody. Right. So it can't really be them Mm -hmm. per se. Mm -hmm. Um, And, it's it's one of the things that changes with the shift uh, to fundamental well-being as a realization, and usually the realization occurs because the voice gets quieter. Right. Um, now, some people, for some people, that voice isn't a word-based voice. Some people think in pictures. Uh, you know, for some people, it's more emotion than it is pictures or words. There's, a, there's some great work that's come out of the University of Las Vegas, Nevada for decades now that shows us that, you know, it's not just a voice in it that we all have in our head, even though that's how we like to sort of generically talk about it. There's all right. sorts of different ways that this shows up for people, but whatever it is, and however it shows up for people, it basically quiets down right. and or usually people that experience this will experience moments of it totally going away. And that will just, you know, yet they're still there, right? It's clearly something is still there experiencing the world. And it's sort of this aha moment, like, hold on. How can that go away if that's me? And yet I'm still experiencing and functioning just fine in the world. I've had a fundamental assumption here. That's not correct about who and what I am. And so that's usually how it shows up for people.
0: Okay. Did that change things for you once you realized all this?
1: It did. You know, I was very fortunate in a sense that, um, I had a map of a lot of people's experiences in my head. Um, and so uh, the other thing that's true about this, uh, and I didn't transition for a long time. I actually put it off for a number of years in our research, even though I'm sure I could have done it sooner. And the reason for that is because there's something else that comes along with this and that's a bias And so, it's actually very important to integrate this well into your life. This can, this is as amazing a blessing as this is. It can also kind of mess things up for you because it brings.
0: Pardon. Yes, because it changes everything and all the people around you who don't feel the same way as you do uh, drop off, correct? That's kind of what you found out.
1: Yeah, or usually you drop them off because you're not (laughs) willing to engage with them the way that you were before. You know, they're all suddenly like they're all sitting around talking about these stories of their life that you don't care about anymore, right? Right? Um, They don't seem to be interested in what you're talking about. You sound kind of crazy to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, so we actually had to create a follow-up experiment that looked at how people could integrate this optimally into their life and not make these mistakes, like not go and immediately talk to their spouse about this thing that had happened to them. Because that can cause real problems in the relationship with their spouse, especially if they land so deep that they no longer experience love. Right? There's a category of this experience that doesn't, where you don't experience love. No, I don't know about that. Imagine you go and talk. I don't know about that,
0: honey. I don't love you anymore. Well, okay. Hold on, hold on. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. I think what happens is you have a deeper love. And you, if you really care about the person you're with and you become enlightened and they don't, then you have to love yourself and love them enough to move forward. If they're willing to come up to that level and and go within and try to find themselves too, because I think that's what we're all doing. We're going within to elevate our consciousness. And when we do that, it does change. Some people like themselves just the way they are and they don't want to change. I bet you found a lot of that.
1: Sure, but how we relate to them from uh, the position of a finder depends on the type of experience we fall into as a finder, right? So one of the unexpected things that happened in the first part of our research was sort of this classification of different types of the experience. Okay. Oftentimes, there's sort of this notion, there's kind of a, a homogeny around um, expectations of this experience. You're in it or you're not. Um, wow. And what we wound up discovering is that there are many different types of this experience. And so if you're in the first type of it, for instance, what we call location one, because we intentionally don't want to say one is better than another one. So we don't want it to be level one, level two, or okay, you know, right. something like that, right? right? So we chose to say that they're all related sort of on a continuum of different types of related experiences. And then on that continuum, if you think of it like a line graph or something,
0: right. there
1: is you know this location here and this location over here on the, on the line and this location over here on the line. And you're not going higher or lower right. necessarily. And so, if you're in location one, for instance, um, you know whether or not your spouse wants to engage in any of that, or it doesn't really matter. You still have uh, a lot of personal love for them. The love hasn't become hasn't has become an impersonal uh, type of love yet, right? Um, just speaking about love in location two, it does become a locate a, a sort of an, an impersonal. Uh, type of love and location three it often becomes a universal love or sort of a divine love or whatever else obviously how you relate to people and in location four that love falls away Um, and you know sort of emotionality falls away as an example and so those are four very different experiences of this and as you might imagine how you relate to people in each one of those experiences and whether it's your spouse or your friends or your coworkers or whatever else is is very different it's useful to know sort of where you're at Uh, So that you can optimize, you know, how your interactions are with people and stuff like that.
0: Right. Well, you know, and I want to find out a little bit more about, um, you said you waited before you transitioned. And I want to talk a little bit more about that um, because it does change things. uh, If you're with someone and and you're doing this work and they're not doing this work, even though you may share some of this with with them, they may not even know what you're talking about or, or won't even be able to relate because they're not even interested in what you're trying to do. Anyway, you guys, we're getting ready to go to commercial break care this is nancy you this is high road to humanity i'm here today with dr jeffrey martin we're talking about the finders are you a finder um share this show with people you guys this is a really good one this is nancy you this is high road to humanity and we will be right back.
3: hang on we have more stories to tell on high road to humanity Check out Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to book your first 30-minute coaching session for free to get you on your high road.
4: Your the
1: the your
2: Do you struggle with knowing the right food for your lifestyle? Is there really a one right way to eat? As a chronic dieter, I was always so confused by the food rules and the fad diets. Where to even start? That's why I decided to go into health coaching. As your health coach, I will help you find the solution that is right for you. I will help you find balance. Unlike most dietitians and nutritionists, I focus on a whole person approach, not just food. I address stress, sleep patterns, underlying root issues, and so many other contributing factors to health. And as a mental illness survivor, I love talking about ways to fire up brain health. If you're interested in learning more and maybe even a complimentary consultation, contact me at www.sparkingwholeness.com or message me on Instagram through the handle sparking wholeness. And now let's get back to the show.
3: We will be right back on High Road to Humanity. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, or download directly from Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, so you never miss an episode of the High Road.
1: Hi,
0: this is Nancy Yearout. This is High Road to Humanity. I'm here today with Jeffrey Martin, Dr. Jeffrey Martin. Jeffrey, you said you waited. Um, Tell me why. Why did you wait before you did this? I mean, because I was so excited once I realized, I was like, oh, I get it. I've got it. I understand things are different now. You feel different. Everything, you look at everything different. I mean, didn't you start to kind of feel that going on within you or or talk to me about this? I'm curious.
1: As I was researching people, I realized that this brought a profound sense of truth um, with it with people yeah. and that that often produced a strong bias in them uh, often in the direction of the form of the experience that they themselves experienced okay. and so if they experienced location 1 they really felt like location 1 was the right experience and if they heard someone else describing it and it sounded kind of close to them you know maybe it was a location 2 or a location 3 experience that was being described okay. you know they would be like wow that person is so close to making it you know but they're just not quite there Um, And so this has caused a lot of friction, of course, among spiritual teachers, among spiritual traditions that all sort of have their favorite spots. Um, And I realized, you know, my responsibility at this point that I'd sort of accidentally taken on was as kind of the first researcher who was really looking into this in a deep and meaningful and well-resourced way. And that if I transitioned, um, I was most likely to wind up like one of these individuals. And wherever I landed, I was then going to basically say, this is the proper form of this experience and Mm. so I realized that I should not do that and uh, that there was sort of an ethical responsibility that had had come into my life um, to to complete a certain degree of the research and so I did that up through from about 2006 to about 2010 and then in 2010 I felt like the work was mature enough there were enough other people working on it that if I got hit by a bus it would just sort of continue on (laughs) and when I had that realization, I thought, okay, well, if I can get hit by a bus, I can also transition. And if I wind up being, you know, hugely biased or whatever, the other people that are now working on this can now sort of just push me off into a corner and say, yeah, Jeffrey's work was really great until December 2010. You know, (laughs) but after that, you just ignore what he says, you know, he's sort of become
0: But Wait a minute. Has it changed your life? Hasn't your life been changed by doing this? Tell me.
1: It has, yeah, of course it's changed. I've experienced all of the same benefits. Um, And and on the other side of it, because I knew about that sense of bias, uh, I was able to build in a very strong feedback system uh, around me to really sort of beat it out of me, if you will. Um, And to make sure that I wasn't falling into it to the greatest extent uh, that that's possible. And so that, and that frankly turns out to be really, really useful, not just for me, But for other finders in general, because one of the things that that voice in your head provides is a lot of introspection, a lot of sort of self referential viewing of yourself. You know, it doesn't just torture you over whether you should wear the blue shirt or the pink shirt. Well, yeah. The person that you're going to meet with, you know, is going to think less of you if you're in the blue shirt than the pink shirt, you know, and all of the crap like that that it does. It also provides a tremendous
0: yeah, but you kind of get past all that stuff it really doesn 't matter anymore don 't you find that that you 're happier that these kind of little things don 't matter anymore you know when you 're when you 're enlightened because And and the other thing I wanted to bring up before um, you continue on is what I thought was interesting in your book, you said when somebody is enlightened and they're around somebody who isn't enlightened, but they're working on it, it changes them. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the energy of this, because you do address that, that, you know, an enlightened person around somebody who's trying to get there helps them. and, And I feel like that's the energy of that person coming in. Can you talk about that a little
1: yeah, sure. It could be the energy, it could not be the energy. I mean, the thing is, their language patterns are also different, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's all sorts of uh, differences just in terms of their physiological expression. Uh, in terms of their nonverbal communication, um, you know, it's, it's, we haven't measured things like pheromones and things like that, but it frankly wouldn't surprise me if there were differences uh, from that standpoint as well. One of the things that has been the most difficult for academic researchers to get bias out of their experiments with has been experimenter voice. And so, you know, they've been able to like screen experimenter bias out of so many different things, but like the thing that is virtually impossible to screen it out of is the experimenter's voice itself. Okay. And so um, this is an example where, you know, whether it's a voice in print or whether it's a voice that's a direct voice, um, you know, it could just be something that simple. It could be simply, you know, language patterns, linguistic patterns, uh, emotional expression or lack of emotional expression patterns in the mm-hmm. voice. Okay. Uh, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that we have to to go to some sort of energetic uh, view of it to make sense of this because there's such a rich literature and psychology of biasing your experiments unintentionally um, and really getting people to have certain experiences you know accidentally when you don't mean to when you're trying to run a non-biased experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the main problems has been the voice of the experimenter, you know, themselves, even when the, even when it's the experimenter's voice in a written document that is given you know, to the person, it's still like their voice is still in there, you mm-hmm. know, how they're structuring their thoughts yeah,
0: yeah, and whatnot yeah. is
1: still in there. And so it yeah. could it, you know, it could sort of be uh, that simple.
0: Now, did you find that everybody who was enlightened had really gotten rid of the ego? Because I believe that's a big part of it. Um, you you say you call it the narrative self. I guess I call it the ego. I think it's we're talking about the same thing. Do you find that? Um, have you found that with your study?
1: It depends. I think the the ego is a little bit of a broader construct uh, for us than the narrative self is, and that's one of the reasons that I chose the narrative self okay. um, so carefully. Um, and so I think it, it's you have to go very very far. Um, to find people that it's difficult to find even sort of the last vestiges of the ego in. Okay. And there's very, very, very few of those people that are out there. They do exist. um, And and in those individuals, um, certainly, you know, I feel like it's been uh, unable, like I've been unable to find aspects of what we would consider the traditional ego um, in them. um but this this also goes back to an earlier question of yours your first question from the from your last question from your last two questions right um which is that there there does develop a sense in people of sort of oh especially in some locations especially in location two uh but also in other locations uh where there's a sense of you know you don't you don't need sort of self-improvement if you will um Mm -hmm. or there's sort of a flow like you just sort of can tell in any moment that I should be doing this instead of doing that and whatever mm-hmm. else. What we found is that I can actually bias that experimentally. That's not coming from some sort of divine source necessarily. Right. In the same way that I can bias other research subjects to, you know, pick up a hammer or to tell me the word ocean uh, or whatever else, I can do it with these people as well. So the same parts of their nervous system are engaged. And what we think is actually without that self-referential layer happening um that there is sort of more unconscious aspects of their system now you know i spent the middle part of the 90s in the advertising business kind of running a huge chunk of the global advertising industry right so Mm -hmm. i'm also an expert in the psychology of persuasion Mm -hmm. Uh, and i know that there's almost no limits in terms of what we can get people to do uh if we've got you know enough time and tools and whatever else and a lot of that is all unconscious to them, They don't realize how they're being influenced or how like they're being subliminal
0: guided. messages and advertising that type of thing is that what can you're be about? subliminal.
1: Yeah, but it, it, it doesn't even have to be, uh, it doesn't even have to be mm-hmm. subliminal, they can be so obvious. Um, and yet, uh, it's kind of bypassing the conscious filters. Um, in a way, or, or even biasing the conscious filters, uh, in a way. So that, that would be 60 shows, you know, in and of itself. Uh, it'd be like a couple of semesters of classes. And I actually did put that into a couple of semesters of classes for okay. University of Hong Kong for their media program. Okay. Uh, but the gist is that uh, I think what's happening with, with finders is that, that a lot of this unconscious programming stuff that is often tamped down And sort of reevaluated and, you know, whatever else at a conscious level, when they have that conscious, you know, narrative self-feedback loop going without that narrative self-feedback loop, that it's just sort of the unconscious stuff that's welling up. And so it it depends massively on what someone had programmed into them, you know, prior to this. One of the things that was most disturbing to me was how often I would find finders who were, you know, just completely destitute and yet they were insisting that, you know, life was perfect, you know, exactly as it I mean, clearly they needed, you know... Healthcare. Well,
0: that's like um, Mother Teresa, though. You know, you got you to gotta look at it from that aspect, you know. Well, but Mother my...
1: Teresa had an infrastructure, right? Well, Mother Teresa had donations coming in. She yes. had people taking care of her. She was not sleeping under a bridge or, you but know, she wasn't saying... losing her house. Or... And oh, she also appears to have gone through a point where she was a finder and then was not a finder. You know, if you look at her at her historical biography, she talks about a point where she pretty much fell out of fundamental well-being. And a lot of what she built was outside of and after fundamental well-being. And so it was like the, the shift to fundamental well-being put her on a road, but then she sort of, you know, lost it because that can absolutely happen to people. People lose it as well.
0: You know, I understand your what you've done here and I understand your research, <clears throat> but I really still believe that, when people go within to find their true selves and they get rid of the programming, like you're talking about, because we all get programmed, you do find your center. I do believe there is a connection with a higher power. And I do believe there is an energy to this um, aspect um, because when you are connected to the divine, you can feel that energy and that is what brings peace within the body and the soul and when the soul is at peace then you know the body of course reacts that way it's 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 happier so i just um i don't know i i know you're you've done a lot of research on this but i just wonder uh again i'm back to the energy and i'm back to the connection with the divine you I know think, we had to look at all of that for sure yeah i just think that's and a huge i think that's a huge piece here um but anyway know, whenever, it's, it's, Good. we're heading to commercial break so when we come back let's address that and let's talk about it because that's where I'm losing my I'm like oh, I don't know about this so when we come Good. back let's discuss that a little bit more hey you guys I'm here today with Dr. Jeffrey Martin his book is called The Finders and it's really interesting and this is how we're all kind of raising our consciousness I think as the world changes this is Nancy Ural. this is High Road to Humanity and we will be right back
3: Hang on, we have more stories to tell on High Road to Humanity. Check out Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to book your first 30 minutes coaching session for free to get you on your high road.
0: Do you feel like something is missing in your life? Do you feel lost or alone? Do the things you buy for yourself lose their luster quickly? the universe is speaking to you it's available to you on my website at www.nancyyearout.com that's n-a-n-c-y-y-e-a-r-o-u-t.com barnes and noble and amazon and thanks for picking up my book and may the energy of the universe bless you
3: We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now welcome back to the High Road.
0: Hi, this is Nancy Uralt. This is High Road to Humanity. I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Martin. Jeffrey, talk about what I'm talking about, the connection and the energy and the with the divine. You said you you had a lot of that and you researched a lot of that. Tell me your findings. I'm I'm a little curious here.
1: Yeah. And so what we you know, we would take people's self-reports, right? And then we would try to conduct experiments okay. around them. Or we would try to dig into them from a scientific literature standpoint or from other standpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those claims, you know, they're totally there. So one thing that was interesting to us about um, there are some major Eastern religions, um, for instance, that some sects, including some major sects, have, um, have realized that early on in someone's journey, it's very important for them to believe and experience that. Okay. And then later on, it's very important for them to drop that and to go beyond it, right? And so I'm not a religious scholar. All I have right. are like the people who want to have dinner right, with me right, because right. of our research and I stuff like that, that are religious why there. do they drop, so that these types, yeah, why did they drop it? Pardon?
0: Why do they drop it? They drop
1: it because they realize that it's not real, that it's sort of a, an internally generated belief system type of thing. And that in order to go further into fundamental well-being, as we would call it, or enlightenment, okay. as they would call it, okay. um, And in order to go further into sort of the versions of enlightenment that they want to get to, which are really the further out versions, um, you know, they're not wanting to stay at location one or two or three or anything like that. Like they're wanting to, you know, go far, basically. Um, And so they've, they've come to realize that the easiest way to get someone into the lower locations is to get them to believe in this stuff and to get them to believe in it to the point where they really feel it, where it becomes like a visceral true belief, like they swear by it, whatever else. Right, right. Uh, but then the point comes where they basically have to let that, they, they kind of have to force that out of people. Um, and it's funny, you know, I was at, I was in this comparative religion class at Harvard back in the day, going to school and um, I could take one class that wasn't a psychology class. And the one that seemed to relate to me was comparative religions. It was like this famous professor last time he was going to teach a clear thing. And one of these things that they assigned us was I got assigned this um, sutra to interpret from Patanjali's yoga sutras from like, you know, that part of the class or whatever. Right. And I literally got the sutra that talked about this. Oh, my
0: gosh.
1: Talk about, <laughs> talk about divine intervention. So bizarre, like, what are the odds of that? Right. right? Um, and Nothing's so just accidental. An example of how far back this goes <laughs> and how entrenched this is. Yeah. And um, some of these and some of these traditions and whatnot. Right? right. And so then a more contemporary example of this is someone like uh, Darren Brown, for instance, who's a mentalist. Uh, who can do amazing things. He can basically, you know, make you swear that red is green and, you know, just all of this. He can really sort of reprogram your nervous system to do things that should seem to be impossible literally while other people are, you know, while your friends are looking on, mm-hmm. if you will. And one of the things that he's done very consistently over a number of different experiments um, that are all televised and made in TV shows and stuff like that are got he's gotten people to, that are atheists basically to have this experience and to swear that they're having this experience and to have it be so viscerally true for them that they're like, my God, this is what my grandma talked about. I can't, I, you know, I just, Oh my God, I was so wrong. Grandma, I'm so sorry. You know, and yeah. then take them right back out of it, back to normal. And they're like, Whoa. Whoa what was that? That was so real, right? And so there's historical examples, I feel like, of this. There are contemporary examples within those religious and spiritual traditions that make use of this. Um, And then there are people that are just, you know, really good mentalists and really good NLP practitioners and, you know, sort of things like that that kind of make a living messing with people um, (laughs) that have also sort of demonstrated its possibilities. And so that's why it doesn't have to be real to me, right? It, It can be real as a real experience. Like, it doesn't deny the experience while that woman is experiencing that being so grateful to experience what her grandmother experienced it's it's a real genuine experience to her well, in that moment but it doesn't <laughs> have to have sort of the broader
0: okay, okay. the
1: broader but, uh, implications if you will. i'm
0: gonna interrupt you for a second i feel like what you're telling me is you can program some, we can reprogram somebody's mind to believe whatever we want them to believe with what you're saying
1: more or less yeah
0: yeah and see, that's, you know, that's reprogram- not just believe,
1: but also experience. But that's
0: you know, reprogramming. That's reprogramming. Yeah. Your mind to get rid of whatever it believed before into believing something else. But I mean,
1: it's all happening to us all the time. Right. That's what right. culture is doing. That's what every book yeah. we read is doing. If I mean, we allow all... it
0: to. Right. If we allow it to. Yeah. It's not, know, it's not even
1: you allow it or you don't allow it necessarily. You know,
0: you think it just happens.
1: Yeah, let me give you a couple of examples from okay. Ellen Langer's work at Harvard, right? And so okay. she, these are not like finders examples. These are normal people examples. Okay. Uh, and so she did this great, she's done a series of great experiments looking at just how environment um, can affect this, right? And so she took a bunch of old men and put them in like a hotel that she referred back to be in the 50s or something. Okay. Um, and she measured them physiologically and emotionally and mentally and all of that to, a, to the nth degree, like everything you could possibly imagine someone could look at physiologically or mentally and emotionally, psychologically, she basically did. Okay. Um, and what she found is that if when she made that like a 50s hotel, those people physiologically reverse-aged
4: I love while it. While they were there I love in it. that
1: environment, right? She then <laughs> took people and she put them into a flight simulator uh, from the Air Force that was like a legit cockpit for like an F-15 or something. I don't remember what it was at the time. Right. Um, and their eyesight got better, right? Because we've all unconsciously absorbed this belief that, Uh, fighter pilots have to have perfect eyesight. And so she thought, you know, I wonder what happens if I stick people, we all of us have this thing, like you can't be a fighter pilot unless you have perfect eyesight, right? Right, right. She's like, I wonder what happens if you take people (laughs) that all have that belief that they've unconsciously absorbed, they didn't choose to absorb it, right? It's just this background thing and stick them in. And then she did a thing that was an undergraduate thesis that was another fun one. She's got a bunch of these, but just the third and final one for this because we're in a hurry, I know. Um, She basically took an undergraduate thesis And, you know, like the undergraduate theses at Harvard are often like better than PhD theses everywhere else, right? And so (laughs) this was really something someone could have gotten a PhD in, you know, it was such a good study. And she basically went out to this undergrad, went out to a couple of hotels, different hotels Mm -hmm. in the Boston area, um, and said to the cleaning staffs, took one group of cleaning staffs and said to the cleaning staff, um, you know... I don't know if you know this or not, but you and your job are actually meeting the presidential fitness guidelines. Like you're so fortunate because your job is like really healthy exercise all day long, you know, and then they took another group and they just basically showed them videos on on the benefits of exercising and stuff like that. Right. And they measured them physiologically and the group that had been told that their job was like exercise you know in the follow up physiological measurements they had their their physiology had literally changed as if they had been actually exercising mm-hmm. right and so there's just so many things like this that that are remarkable and it's just right. sort of the reality of our nature and our bodies and our biology and you know all of that but you don't normally run across these things think about them whatever else unless you're in my line of work you know right
0: no exactly well are you happier
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, Are it was the you? best
0: thing I ever did. <laughs> I love it. Are you married? Do you have kids? I mean, do you have a family or? or...
1: I'm not married. I don't have kids.
0: Okay. Um, okay. But you're just a so, happier soul because you realize what?
1: Because I've had the same experience. You know, I had the same transition, um, I, you know. I keep myself somewhere right around the end of location two. If people look up our work and they okay. you know, are wondering, everybody always wonders like, well, what, what, you know, where do you land or whatever else? I've yeah. experienced many of these locations, but <sighs> the one that's most effective for me in the world, Um, is really being, uh, you know, it sort of maximizes my happiness, maximizes my peace and well-being and allows me to be effective at all of the stuff that I'm responsible for in the world, which is a lot of stuff, Um, is really the end of location two. And, you know, we talk about that in our work. You know, you really have to sort of be matched up. It's pretty hard to run a company from location three. You tend to give away all of your resources. You're not a good steward of the company's resources if you're just like, you know, everybody that comes in for you, you're just loving them to death from sort of this (laughs) (laughs) and it's like oh sure you can have a raise or oh yeah take the next month off or what i not so good for the business right Right. Uh, and so you do have to sort of um you know figure out where you're at figure out what's appropriate for your life and sort of you know choose the type of this we think um that
0: optimizes all that so you have a program so if people want to become a finder what do they do
1: Yeah, so we had a problem when we wanted to research before and after. Those first 1200 people, they were already in it. Uh, But of course, the day comes when you want to measure people before, during and after it. Mm
2: -hmm. And so uh,
1: by that point, I knew everything all around the world, all the methods, all of that. And I knew that there was nothing that could work. Uh, financially for us, you know, if you're spending two to $3,000 per neuroscience subject, and like maybe 1% of them will transition, uh, that's a guaranteed failure financially for any sort of scientific project, right. And so we had to basically come up with a protocol that had a higher success rate, just in order to do the research. Uh, And so that research is now all done. Um, and so what we've done is we've just kept those out there, basically. And so there's two programs people can look up, and all they are is our research protocols.
4: Okay. Um,
1: one is called the Finder's Course, which is a three-month-long program, and the other one is 45 Days to Awakening, which is a six-week program. Um, okay. The Finders Do people course, do this
0: online, or what do they do? They... they do it online from okay. all over the world. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they go to... It's based
1: it's not theory-based.
0: What website do they go to? And
1: so to sign up for this they can go to finderscourse.com they can go to 45daystoawakening.com if someone thinks they're a finder we have a free mini course for them at Um,
2: explorerscourse.com
1: that was our experiment in you know helping people to optimally sort of integrate it into their lives and and not wind up sleeping under a bridge. And, you know,
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Hey, listen, we're we're running out of time here. We're we're only an hour show, but um, I'm so excited that you came on today. And people, if they have questions for you, can they email you or how do they get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, really, any of those websites.
0: They can find Um, you you and they can ask questions. And
1: Google, you know, you Google me and I come up with like a million links.
0: You're so great. Okay, cool. You guys. I'm easy to find. The book is called The Finders. If you're watching me on YouTube, it's really an awesome book. There was so much to this. It was really, really interesting. There were so many interesting uh, things that you... um, came up with in here. I just, I found it fascinating that you did this work and I think it's great. You, I'm going to ask you one more final question before we get out of here today. Do you see a, a consciousness being raised? Do you see people changing? Do you see everything that's going on? Do you see a difference in people?
1: I think it's polarizing, you know, um, okay. in the same, you have know, you have platforms like Facebook that are definitely increasing the narrative self and the strength of the narrative self. Okay. Yeah, in the majority of the population. And so I think there's a strengthening that's going on for a large percentage of the population in terms of their narrative self. Okay. Um, and it's almost like there's some sort of balancing effect on the other side from a fundamental well-being yeah. uh, side where, I, where you do see after about 1996 in our data, more people transitioning uh, to fundamental well-being about the time that it became possible to learn more methods and to learn more about fundamental well-being. Okay. You know, the internet had sort of, had sort of matured by 1996 to a certain point, and information began to become more available. And so, the availability of that information appears to also have, you know, been significantly Jeez. increasing the number of people that experience fundamental well-being. So, I think we're in—it's it's both. You know, it's—I don't think there's a yeah. big tidal wave going towards <laughs> the fundamental well-being side, unfortunately. Okay, um, but, but you it's see definitely it- increasing
0: okay cool well that makes me happy i think so too i'll tell you that well listen it's really great to have you on the show today i'm really glad you came today and um you guys if you want to pick up this book it's called the finders by De- dr jeffrey a martin this is nancy Earl. this is high road to humanity and join me next week we'll have another fabulous guest on thanks so much and have a great day keep
1: the motion
0: can achieve your goal You can achieve
1: your goal